Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Brought to you by Great Clips. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and their family members who might be struggling with post-traumatic stress so they can get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we'll be featuring Dan Jarvis, a United States Army veteran who spent 15 months deployed in Iraq. It took a toll on him, both physically and mentally. Now, Dan spends his days helping other veterans and their family members who are struggling with post-traumatic stress. Join me as we talk about the advancements that we've made on post-traumatic stress and how you too can be helped. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. And we're back. I uh, wanted to welcome Dan to the show. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Jay, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, it's good to hear from you again, brother. Um, as everyone knows, or maybe not doesn't know, that you and I filmed an episode of Operation Healing Heroes together uh, a couple of years ago down in Cabo. Uh, what a beautiful setting we were in there, huh? Yeah, not only that, but that fish that we pulled in, holy mackerel. That was amazing, wasn't it? Well, Dan, usually on our podcasts, uh, our listeners know that I usually break it into like four different segments, and it's kind of what was life like growing up, what was life like in the military, what was transitioning out of the military like, and then what's life like after the military. That's usually what I do. But with you, because of the fact that you and I have known each other now for a number of years, uh, we filmed the TV show together of Operation Healing Heroes, and because of the fact that... um, I know that there's a lot of information that you can share with the healing of post-traumatic stress. I really want to focus on that more so. Uh, but I do want to start out letting our listeners know kind of about your your time in service. Um, just to give a quick overview, you're a U.S. Army combat veteran and a former law enforcement officer. Um, your initial two-year term into the Army, uh, you were only 17 years old, right? Yes, joined uh, right out of high school. Cool. And actually, got out. Had, actually, Go ahead. No, I actually had to have parental permission to actually go in the service. <laughs> so you went in at an early age, spent a couple of years, did two years, and then uh, came out of the uh, military. And I'm sorry, yeah, came out of the military and then joined again after 9-11. Uh, you went in at, at 34 years old. You went back into Army infantry uh, to go defend our, our country. Um, and then since being out of the military, you started a nonprofit called 220, which again helps our first responders and veterans and their family members uh, who are struggling with PTS. And I really want to spend a lot of time on that because um, to me, I mean, it's the most amazing thing I've come across in, in my years of uh, service to our veterans and their family members as it relates to PTS. It's one of the, it's a game changer. So I want to talk heavily about that. But um, 
Before we get too deep into this, I wanted to, uh, again, just mention that if you're interested, please log on to OperationHealingHeroes.org and watch Dan's uh, episode of the TV show uh, or on our YouTube channel. You can catch Dan's episode there. Uh, but that being said, uh, you did spend 15 months deployed in Iraq. And so I want to kind of set the stage, if you don't mind, talking about your time in service. I know that you you suffered a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, and you also suffered for some post, from for some post-traumatic stress. And so... If you don't mind, can we just kind of pick up from there? Sure. Um, so I, I, when I went back in at 34, it was in September of 2004. And I had to go all the way back through basic training, all the way back through the advanced individual training for infantry. You know, at 34, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, you're, you're competing against 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. Um, but hey, old man muscle is a real thing. Um, got through, got through the uh, basic and AIT, and and was stationed out in Hawaii. Um, I was a wolfhound with the 27th Infantry Regiment, and as I was um, arriving in in Hawaii, that unit was already deployed to Afghanistan. So they were probably about four months um, until they were prepared to come home. So I was in what they would call the rear detachment, and. You know, when the unit got back, they literally came back to a set of orders to go back in 12 months. Hmm. And yeah, it was a it was a turn and burn for those guys. And so I ended up uh, in a line infantry unit as a team leader. Um, I was promoted to sergeant relatively quickly, you know, obviously due to experience and, and education. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I was a team leader when I first arrived in country in Iraq. And it was August 2006. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing hotter on the planet than Kuwait in August. Um, the, the day that we arrived, it was about 153 degrees on the tarmac on the airstrip with about a 10-mile-an-hour wind, wind. And I was like, holy cow, what did, what did I get myself into? Um, so we ended up doing a little bit of um, you know, getting acclimation. We did about two weeks acclimation in Kuwait, and then they moved us right into uh, a, a, right outside of a village called Hawija. Uh, a little forward operating base called McHenry. It was a battalion-sized FOB. So our the 27th Infantry Regiment was um, second time was in FOB McHenry, and you know relatively quickly right off the bat we realized you know this it was kind of like the Wild West. Um, we were doing the right seat ride with the guys from the 101st Airborne, and I remember the first patrol we go out onto. Um, we were going inside the village of Hoija, um, where they're. You know, it's where their police officers and their uh, Iraqi army guys would, would kind of be it's like a joint communication center. And we stopped and we had a perimeter unit set up and we're getting ready to collapse the perimeter and head back to our, our FOB. And all of a sudden you heard machine gun fire go off and we're talking five o'clock in the morning. So that was my welcome to Iraq. Um, we had a, pre- we had a pretty kinetic, a pretty kinetic fight in Iraq as compared to the later deployment to Afghanistan, we, we did a lot more direct fighting. Um, and, you know, 15 months was a, was a pretty long time to be deployed. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of, we had a lot of um, IED attacks, a lot of indirect artillery fire. Um, our battalion lost 18 uh, people during that deployment. So out of about 750 uh, Americans, we lost 17 Americans and one uh, Iraqi interpreter during that deployment, which is, it's, it's quite a lot. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it, and it was like it got to the point where you know we were we were doing uh, patrols in the outskirts of Huija. We had a, a, a patrol base set up, um, and it was basically it was an unfinished uh, mansion style home. It was probably six thousand square feet, 
with two floors, but it was all all solid concrete with no windows. So we we had set up there at the foothold of Route Trans Am, which was kind of like the main supply route back to our forward operating base. And we were kind of like the pressure point. You know, we would, you know, keep the insurgents out of placing IEDs on that main supply route. And one of the days we were sitting there and we took indirect fire about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was, you know, just one round came in and and somebody had made the joke. He said, oh, they must be zeroing their their mortars. And then sure enough, two hours later, uh, we were finding ourselves inside of a pretty complex attack where we had indirect fire coming in, RPGs, machine gun fire. Um, and I was I was in a, um, you know, was in a Humvee with a Crow weapon system on the perimeter with one of my soldiers. And it was it was kind of it was kind of weird. It was like something out of a movie because I was racked out, and all of a sudden I, I feel this hand on my chest, and and Vivian is like, "They're shooting at us!" So, and it was like it was literally like right out of the movie Black Hawk Down. I'm like, "Well, shoot back!" You know. And next thing you know, all hell breaks loose, and you know RPGs are hitting the building, um, indirect fire. I'm literally watching mortar rounds drop closer and closer to my position. So like they're 200 meters out, 150 meters out. 50 meters out. And my whole thought was if we get hit inside this Humvee, there's no armor on the top that protects it, protect us. But thankfully that, that didn't happen. Um, and you know, the guys in the building, it was just, it was full on war zone at that point. It was machine gun fire going out, machine gun fire coming in. Um, and then towards the end of the, we had Kyle warriors come in. So they were firing rockets from the helicopters. Um, and then they tried to get a dump truck, a vehicle, vehicle born ID, a V bed we called into the back of our compound. So we were able to, um, they were able to stop the vehicle literally right on the berm. It had just missed the entryway that would have brought it right into the back of the of the uh, building. And, you know, th- there was three guys in there. They 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 killed all three of the guys. And then, um, you know, as the, you know, firefight slowed down and, and then finally it waned, um, we had the pretty much QRF came from our base. The whole perimeter, whole area was was pretty much locked down. And um, when they got to that vehicle-borne IED, the EOD guys, the explosives guys came in, and it had um, about 1,700 pounds of homemade explosives. And the back of the, in other words, it was fertilizer. And the back of the truck was full of gravel, and it was around 300 pounds of propane in the back as well. But wow. during that firefight, yeah, during that firefight, um, they severed the um, the command wire from the from the bed of the truck to the back. So it had that thing detonated at any point, even to where it stopped, it would have been a massive Claymore mine and uh, would have probably been catastrophic. And at, at that time in Iraq, that was the largest vehicle-borne IED in country. Um, after that, they did have one or two that were larger um, that actually did have catastrophic um, effects on platoons. Um, I know the guys from the 82nd lost an entire platoon in a building from a V-bed. Which would have happened to our guys, and you know that was kind of like the that was the energy of that fight. You know, constantly you know escorting EOD to defuse IEDs. Um, we went through four EOD elements. Uh, we had three Air Force and one Navy crew. The Air Force was usually in and out in four months, and then we lost an entire Navy crew uh, to a rocket attack. They hit their vehicle. Um, so I mean, it was it was it was a pretty intense, pretty intense um, through that whole deployment, and. Um, yeah, and as we were getting ready to close out the deployment, we're uh, we're transitioning with the 10th Mountain guys, and we're at another checkpoint. And uh, I'm I'm the sergeant, the guard, and my job is to maintain the security in the towers, make sure the guys got everything they need, um, fuel in the generators, all that kind of things. And I'm I've got a little radio that we can all communicate. And I heard this thump in the distance, and I went over the radio. I said, "Anybody hear that?" 
And then next thing you know, a um, I think it was like a it's like a 122 millimeter um, artillery round ended up detonating on top of one of the Heskos, like literally like maybe 10 feet from where I was. And it was more of a, you know, turn to run and face plant into the, into the gravel. Hmm. Um, so that was, that was probably my first TBI that I had received. Um, it was unconscious for probably about 30 seconds. And then it just kind of quickly came to and, you know, just days confused, you know, and, and that was really the end of, that was the end of the deployment. And, you know, at that point I'm, we're getting ready to head back to um, Hawaii and I'm in Kuwait. I'm on the last body, main body seven, the last element to leave. And uh, my company commander had come up to me and said, Hey, uh, Sergeant Jarvis, I want to let you know that Elliot's gone. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, he's dead. I'm like, what? I mean, we're the last body here. He's already in Hawaii. He says he went out, um, was partying, and he overdosed on drugs. He's gone. Wow. And I was like, dude, I, I just saw this guy like a week, two weeks prior before when he left. And uh, that was kind of crushing to, you know, you, you spend time with a, a soldier on deployment. He was a, he was a sergeant. Um, he was pretty popular with the guys. And um, yeah, it was just, just gone. And and I had to tell his best friend who was with me. I mean, body seven, another squad leader. And that alone was, was a difficult task to actually just give him, Hey, mm-hmm. I want to let you know that uh, Elliot's gone. And he said the same thing. He said, what do you mean? I said, I said, he overdosed. He's, he's dead. And, I just remember the look on his face. It was just like, wow, you know, you, you can't, it's one thing to lose somebody in combat. It's just something totally different when you lose somebody that way, who's on U.S. soil, who's safe, who's back home, mm-hmm. um, when he was just getting ready to live his life. So wow. that kind of became a regular, became a routine. I think anybody that's put, put a uniform on and has deployed is going to recall stories just like that all over the military. You know, we're always losing people back home. And, and then as a unit re- redeployed back to Hawaii, as we're all back, you know, boots on the ground, safe at home, you know, then all the other issues start coming up. Um, disciplinary issues with some of the guys, um, a lot of drinking, heavy alcohol consumption, a lot of self-medication. Um, and I, I think the unit, we probably lost maybe four or five within 12 months of coming home. Motorcycle crash, you know, negligent discharge on a weapon, while somebody was intoxicated, you know, car crashes, things like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. Wow. And, uh, you know, sure, you know, once that, once we got back to Hawaii, you know, things started to level out a little bit, the op tempo slowed down a bit. There was no return orders for at least 18 months. Um, and then I, I came down on orders, uh, and I got uh, tasked to be a drill sergeant for the United States army after that. Um, and I got those orders immediately after returning from, from, uh, Iraq. So I'm on my post-deployment leave and my platoon sergeant says, Hey, uh, you want, I want to check your orders. So moral of that story was, um, I was hunting down my, my reenlistment NCO because I wanted to choke him out. Cause my, my intention was to go back to Iraq with a unit, uh, didn't get to happen. So ended up going to Fort Knox, did two years. That was a blur, you know, working 14, 16, 18 hour days. So all my battles out there, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, training, training the next, you know, group of soldiers to, to go down range. And, uh, at Fort Knox, my, um, my job was to work with, um, non-combat arms. I mean, the only combat arms guys we had were forward observers. Mostly we got medics coming through mechanics, HVAC repair. You know, we had to put a lot of, um, combat arms into those, um, 
basic training cycles after the whole the Jessica Lynch um, convoy in Iraq that they lost a bunch of guys. Uh, the, the, what they did determine was there wasn't enough combat arms trained, drill sergeants training people. So we kind of got tasked with a lion's share of uh, of the the drill sergeant assignments because every base, you know, Fort Jackson, you know, you know, Fort Leonard Wood, you know, Fort Knox, all the Fort Sill, all those that may have non uh, combat arms MOSs, we had to we had to fill at least one in every platoon. Um, which is why we kind of got more on the DA select. So the Department of Army would select us. So, yeah. And then um, after coming off of the trail, it was, you know, head to a unit up in Alaska. I went to Fort Wainwright, um, you know, talk about a crap sandwich. I went from Iraq drill sergeant right to Afghanistan. There was like literally no breaks in between. Um, and I, I get to the unit in Alaska in Fairbanks, a uh, base called Fort Wainwright. I was assigned to the 25th Infantry out of Alaska, which it was also 25th in uh, Hawaii, but it was just a different uh, brigade. And went to the 124 Infantry and was a striker brigade. So I got assigned to a, a striker platoon uh, or striker company. And, you know, we had to go into the Zabul province of Afghanistan. Uh, it was between Helmand and Kandahar province. It wasn't a whole lot of priorities in that area. And we went to a base that had very... Um, very limited resources as far as, you know, resupply was a little bit more complex there. Um, when we first got into Afghanistan, we didn't have any water on the base. We literally, uh, we, we shared a base with the Romanian uh, army. It was a company of Romanians and a company of Americans, and they would literally hoard the water in their, in their tents. And it took a little bit of time to get us resupplied where we could actually, you know, be effective. Um, and we immediately started pushing out into um, the outer areas um, of the Shah Joy district. A lot of foot patrols into what they call the bazaar. It's kind of like a little flea market. Um, that was, it was kind of different because here we are a bunch of Americans moving out into, you know, uncharted territories because the unit that we replaced did not do much. They didn't leave the fob hardly ever. It was like they stayed on the base. They stayed there on the base. So we were pushing and pushing some buttons that started getting noticed. Um, and then we started you know, finding ourselves on the receiving end of a, of a of an 82 millimeter recoilless rifle team. There's a group of three guys that would um, shoot a direct fire weapon, which the 82 millimeter is more of an anti-tank weapon, but they would shoot it in an indirect mode. And it was it was kind of ironic because the first time we took contact, you know, you want to talk about, and this will play a little bit into the work we do with PTSD. We were having a a platoon huddle, a platoon leader, platoon sergeant, all the squad leaders, and we're talking about you know the mission the next day, and I hear this thump in the background, and it was the same thump I heard in Iraq, you know, several years before, and I looked up at everybody. I says, "We're about to take contact," and they all looked at me like I was crazy, and then about twelve seconds later, um, that round impacted maybe twenty meters from where we were, um, and of course everybody looked at me like I was nuts, and then. We end up taking casualties um, there, so we we're trying to get our guys into bunkers because we didn't know, you know, what was coming after that. If it was going to be a, a complex attack, so we got all our guys out. But you know, me, my platoon sergeant, another squad leader, we were going into the tent, the uh, we call the Joe's tent, right next to us because uh, they were, that's where the casualties were. And as we we're about to enter the tent, an RPG round air burst right over top of us, maybe five six feet above and all three of us got knocked to the ground we we're literally all on the ground we're like holy crap did that just happen mm -hmm. so then my platoon sergeant says hey hey sergeant Jarvis, get to the bunker i need accountability the guys right now we'll get the casualties so i had to get to the bunker had to get accountability of all of our people 
And then we had two guys that were medevaced um, out of the compound uh, by helicopter. Uh, one of my soldiers, Kean Brown, took shrapnel to the face into his hip, and and uh, Grimes took shrapnel to his buttocks. And he was actually kind of a funny guy. He was like, "Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, I got shrapnel in my butt. I think I want to be called Forrest Gump from now on." So we just kind of. <laughs> Kind of chuckled. I mean, that's just the nature of the soldiers. Right. Whereas Kean, you know, Kean was kind of out of it. They had him pretty doped up because he was in a lot of pain. Um, Kean didn't come back to the fight, whereas uh, Grimes was able to come back to us. He was able to heal up, but because of the damage to Kean's eye uh, and his inability to walk that well, he he got sent back to the U.S. So uh, yeah, it was that was our welcome to Afghanistan. It was probably three weeks after we arrived, and then from then on, it was pretty routine. It was you know. Indirect fire, get to the bunkers, indirect fire, get to the bunkers. And uh, we end up sort of pushing out even further. And we set up um, a combat outpost um, between, I think it was Shemizi and Deftani, the two little two villages. And one night we're doing a, what we call a, um, a was it not really a presence patrol? We were going up for about three to four nights to, to determine what the patterns of life were. So we had one squad on the backside of the mountain looking at, Shimizi and the other squad looking at Deftani. And that was kind of um, for three days because we got hit with a rocket attack from behind Deftani. So we're trying to hopefully trying to catch somebody in the action. And and I had to, that was a night late July. I had to lead a patrol down the back down the mountain across the valley into the uh, crossover river and link up with our strikers because we had to take four um, of the Afghan soldiers with us. And we had to get halal meals for them they wouldn't eat our meals because they weren't kosher so i'm like oh, great i'm about to get killed over food and as we're getting ready to come down it was probably 11 o'clock at night and i heard machine gun fire off in the distance and about 20 minutes after that we we're going to head back down i'm like oh this is great this is just wonderful and then i said all right let's go and uh so i led the patrol we went down the mountain crossed over the valley and we're getting ready to step across the river and i ended up stepping on a pressure plate at that point Pressure plate is the detonation device for an improvised explosive device. And the IED blast was probably about 10 feet from where I was. Um, and all I saw was a big fireball go straight up, probably 20 feet up into the air. And then you just feel that wind and that overpressure and then that dirt and the soot and the gravel and the smoke um, just kind of knocked me on my backside. And um, it was dazed. That was a, that was probably my, that was my second TBI, that deployment it was dazed. Um, had to get accountability. So I'm calling for status of my guys. And one of my guys isn't responding. And I'm like, you know, Lynch and there's nothing Lynch, nothing. And then, you know, it was very dark. We were running it. We were walking in a Ranger file. So the guys were actually in a pretty tight formation. So we're like, okay, we got to get, and then, then he goes, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. He was just kind of in shock. And then we had to get off the ad objective. Cause at that point you're inside of a kill zone. So you want to, you know, break contact, get off that battle space. Um, we set up a perimeter and I'm trying to call up on the mountain because I didn't want the guys to come back down the mountain after us because I knew they heard it. Everybody heard it. The guys in the trucks heard it. They heard it up on the mountain and they couldn't raise us on radio. I could hear them, but I couldn't transmit because when I looked down at my radio, when I, when I hit the ground, it snapped the antenna. So I had no antenna. Mm. So I couldn't transmit. I could just, I could just, I was below them. So I was able to receive their transmission. And, you know, at that point, you know, we're, we're, we're in a security halt. We got 360 security. We're like, all right, we've got infrared, you know, strobes on our helmets. Just let's hold tight. Everybody pull security. 
And then they found us. Obviously, they're, they're walking night vision, so they're going to see the flashing strobe. So they end up connecting up with us. Um, and my lieutenant was talking. He's okay. You guys are good. All right, Sergeant Jarvis, go back to the vehicles, get the halal meals, and meet us back up in the mountains. And I'm like, sir, please, all due respect. I said, I don't even think I could tell you what day of the week it is, and I don't have a radio. And so the medic was with him. Medic came, checked everybody out, and the medic says, these guys are done. They're they're all they all have TBI, all have TBI symptoms. So we ended up. Um, getting escorted back to our, our strikers. And, and the, the weird thing is I was trying to get to the strikers from the get go, but I couldn't even read a GPS. I was, I kept like my, I was dizzy off balance. And that's when we decided to hold up. And as we're walking back to the uh, strikers, we're walking up a little hill and I find myself veering and falling, like oh. literally had no balance. You know, that's the, that's the whole, the TBI aspect. And it was just, it was new to me because I'd, I'd had my bell rung before, but never to that, to that extent. Mm-hmm. And we got back to the, we got back to the vehicles and, and I was dry heaving. Um, I had no food in me, so I couldn't throw up, but I was so not, na- I was just extremely nauseous and just very dizzy. Equilibrium was out of whack. And um, that was a pretty significant moment in my life because after that event, we got back to our patrol base, you know, the first two, three nights that I'd close my eyes and try to drift to sleep, I'd hear an explosion. And, you know, the, the anatomy of post-traumatic stress, you're, you're not post-traumatic in combat. You're actually still in it. So it's not really PTS that you're dealing with, but I'm still dealing with um, hearing that explosion as I'm drifting off to sleep. And then all of a sudden I'm awake and my heart's racing 160 beats a minute. Mm. So your body goes into a full fight or flight response. And the first two times I think I did that, it was literally like I'm trying to put my body armor on because I thought we were being attacked again. And then I realized, okay, nobody else is moving. Something's something's off. Um, they took me they took me off the battle roster for all of about seven days, uh, which was difficult. You know, as a as a leader in the military, you don't want to be without your guys. You feel a level of responsibility and obligation to them. Um, but I couldn't I couldn't fight the doctor. Um, Major Greenberg's told our lieutenant multiple times, there's no way he can go back out. If he does and gets hit again like that, he could kill him. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to push the issue. But, you know, and then after that, I'm I'm doing combat missions. I'm back on the battle roster and I'm literally, um, I'm literally like not sleeping. I'm a, I'm a zombie at that point. It's, it's like, I, I wouldn't sleep at all. I'd be up all night couldn't sleep, couldn't function normally, and then have to go out and do missions. And it was three weeks after that IED blast that, you know, we lost Doug and uh, we had to escort our explosives guys out to exploit an IED that was found up on a mountaintop by one of the other dismounted pl- platoons. And um, my job, I was in the lead striker, was to, you know, find the roadside bombs before we actually get to them so we could bring the EOD guys up to exploit them. And we had a, you know, we had a mine roller on our vehicle. So the pressure's down. Uh, and it turned out we ended up crossing over a little wadi with a pressure on the mine roller. Nothing happens. So we just keep pushing. Um, if you see things with like wires, we would stop and exploit it, but we didn't see anything out of the ordinary. And, and I remember just joking around, we, we go through the first wadi and come up the other side. And I said, I said, all right, boys, we're still amongst the living. And, uh, the driver goes, Sergeant Jarvis, that's messed up. I said, hey, man, it is what it is, right? And then shortly after that, the fourth vehicle in our order of movement was an MGS main gun system striker with a 105 howitzer was hit. And you heard the explosion. I remember looking back and just seeing the big old plume, the cloud. And 
initially they gave their green flag, you know, saying that everything was okay. Um, but they lose comms because once you get hit with a with an ID in a vehicle, you have to disable the vehicle. So you shut down the fuel supply so that you know you can't burn or anything. And uh, and then it came. He got his embitter radio turned on and and said he needed the medic. And I'll never forget. It was the most surreal um, experience in the world. I'm watching the platoon sergeant from the back of the element walking slowly with a mine detector and a medic up to the vehicle. But the EOD guys, those guys were phenomenal. Literally, they were they had their Valon um, metal detectors, and they are moving rapidly. So they got to the vehicle. They cleared a path all the way back to the medic. They got everybody back up to the vehicle. And it was 9.36 in the morning when they came across the radio and said that we lost Doug. So for me, that was a huge gut punch. That was a, 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 a pinnacle moment of my career where I felt so responsible, so so much guilt and shame and anger, uh, you name it. It was, I took all of that onto myself because it was my job to stop that from happening. And, and what I really questioned the most about that was the fact that three weeks before I didn't say something when they put me back on the battle roster, I should have told somebody I was not hundred percent. I didn't need to be up front. Hmm. And so that's, that's the, that's the guilt that, that stuck with me. It's like, if somebody else had been up front, would they have found it? The reality is they wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, it was a command wire. It was buried deep. Uh, you would have literally had to been out, you know, with a metal detector and just finding it luckily. So, but at the moment, that's what I was telling myself. So I kind of, dealt with that that survivor guilt and then you know not too far after that um one of my other soldiers we were doing they were doing a a little detail cleaning up the airfield and we got hit with the 82 millimeter recoilless rifles again and he was four feet from impact and he took um shrapnel uh to his chest to his head pretty much to his whole body and so we're literally we had three guys that kind of came to his aid with no gear on just they were wearing physical training uniforms and, and, you know, t-shirts, shorts, and, and tennis shoes. And they're trying to evacuate Donnie off of that HLZ and they're redirecting the fire on the evacuation. They end up getting him into a vehicle and then realize that, Hey, these guys are shooting heat rounds. That's a high explosive anti-tank. If it hits a striker, it's going to get kill everybody inside of it. And so they got him out of that and had to move him to one of the bunkers and at that point, you know, we're all taking security positions up. And it was the one time um, the guy that was in the 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 striker said, hey, Sergeant Jarvis, I got a heat signature 3,400 meters out because he's looking through the thermal sites. And I said, laze it and give me a distance and direction. And then next thing you know, the radar base, the radar we had on our base gave a point of origin site of the 82 millimeter. And they were literally about 20 minutes apart. So he's like, what do you want me to do? I said, get your gun up and, and engage it. So that was like one of the one times from the base that we actually shot, you know, back um, the 50 cal. We we tried to call in, I tried to call in a, a fire mission. Uh, we were denied um, mortars going out because it was too close to one of the village compounds, you know, and then, you know, I'm up on top of one of the towers. We're, we're looking for targets. We're looking for anything. And then providing security as a helicopter landed and took Donnie away. Uh, thank God he survived, but for him it was it was touch and go for quite a while. He uh, he he shredded the pericardium sac around his heart. I don't know if people know what that's a little thin membrane that protects the heart, which means that as his heart contracted, the shrapnel went through and shredded the sac. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if his heart had been expanded, it would have blew his heart up. 
So, you know, it took them a while, but they got Donnie, you know, it took them like three or four times to get him airborne. They had to actually remove part of his skull cap um, because the pressure was so high in his head and they got him back to Germany and, you know, he came back to the U S and he's, he's doing well. He's actually in, he's in college right now. So he's wow. a good kid, man. Yeah. It's just, it's just a, a unbelievable story of survival. And, uh, you know, that was it. That was the end of my deployment. And I realized, um, we were we were winding down we were going through the winter months and then literally had like three um about three weeks left and you know sergeant ingram came in and says hey uh, we got a red cross notice for sergeant jarvis and of course anybody who knows the red cross notice is not here anymore and um so i immediately made a phone call home to my dad and my mom had had a massive heart attack and so the next day i got put on a on a vehicle uh, moved out of um, our patrol base and started my journey back home. Uh, when I left, um, or I was in Kandahar, getting ready to go home, I, I was at the mercy of the the flight paths. I had no I had no way of, you know, determining when I could get out. And I'll never forget. I was having a conversation with my dad, and I had never heard my dad extremely emotional before. But he was a he was a train wreck. He's like, "You need to hurry home. I don't know how much longer your mom can hold on." And I'm like, oh, you're talking about helpless. It's like you have nothing you can do. So I, I literally go to the gym and I get on a treadmill for about two hours and I just run as fast as I could for two hours. Mm-hmm. I just had to get all that energy out. And then and then finally came to realization. So I went back and I, I called my dad. I said, you know, Pop, I, I, I respect your decision. You've been married to mom for a long time. I said, whatever decision you make, I will support. But I said, do not let me be the reason she suffers. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the last last conversation I had before I got home and um, made it home and didn't make it in time to say goodbye. So had to do the funeral. And then shortly after the funeral, I went, had to go back to um, go back to Alaska and wait for the guys to come back uh, from country. And that's when things really kind of changed for me. Cause you know, here I am, I'm, you know, I'm no longer, I'm by myself. I'm isolated. I'm, I, I end up having to get a, an apartment. So I'm in a basement apartment right outside the back gate of Fort Wainwright and one of the one of the first things I do when I get there is I go get get a case of beer and drink until I pass out. And then I woke up the next morning and said, Oh, I can do this. I can sleep, you know. And finally it, it just it just numbed me to the point where I could sleep. It, you know, numbed the anxiety of the stress. And that just kind of became a routine, you know, for the next year. You know, it was a lot of self-medication with alcohol and a lot of um, you know, isolation. I, if I did things, it was usually in a group setting around alcohol around with other vet with other soldiers but um yeah it was extremely unhealthy at the time i thought it was the way to what the way to go but you know i know now it was extremely unhealthy yeah but that was that was the return and uh you know i kind of got to the point where i got moved off of the line i came out of my platoon from bravo company and i got moved up to the headquarters and i i was a senior staff sergeant at the battalion so they needed to make they needed to give other NCOs experience on the line. So I got selected to go up to the staff world and I was okay on the line. Cause you're doing things like training, going to the ranges, you know, brains operating the way it's supposed to. And then they put you on a desk and that's when everything slowed down. Yeah. And that's when all the thoughts kind of came in and started creeping in and, and I would work as late as I possibly could. Cause I didn't want to go home. I did not want to be at the house alone. Yeah. And you, usually your Sergeant major is the last one to leave. And he would always come in and say, He'd call me Cookie because um, my name, last name is Jarvis. We're about the same age. It was like a, it's a kind of an inside joke. Cookie Crisp cereal. The dude with the magic wand was Cookie Jarvis. It'd be like, "Hey Cookie, <laughs> Sergeant Major, go home. 
Roger, that's our manager. Pull my cat card out and, and I hit home and, and I would drink until I slept. And, you know, I, I got really good at it. And then, uh, you know, probably March, actually it was March 2nd. I got to the point where I was at the lowest. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I started doing, I want to get into that. I want to take a a quick break, but I want to get into, um, like after you're back home and like you said, everything started sinking in, right. It's that, it's that coming down off of that major rush, right. And being back here and I don't know if it's finding that sense of purpose or what, but all of a sudden, you know, the thoughts start coming in and the nightmares and the the drinking and it all plays a toll on you. But, um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, again, Dan's, uh, transition back into civilian life or at least coming out of the military and, and the struggles and things that he faced, uh, trying to, to reintegrate into civilian life. Uh, we'll be right back. This week's Veterans Resource, Nonprofit of the Week, is 22-0. We believe there's a better way to heal trauma and unhelpful negative emotions, not teach you to cope with them. The Trauma Resiliency Protocol, TRP, is for post-traumatic stress and acute stress. The Emotions Management Process, EMP, is for extreme negative triggers involving unhelpful emotions like sadness, anger, or shame, often accompanying traumatic or significant emotional events. During these therapies, you're not required to discuss the trauma. Everything centers around the triggered emotions. They become malleable when active. We change the state of the emotions, not the memory. There are no costs or fees associated with veteran coaching. Best of all, you can do the work remotely in the comfort of your own home. Visit www.220.org for more information. And we're back with uh, Dan Jarvis. Dan, again, thank you for sharing your heroic story about your deployments uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan and um, unfortunately losing your mom at the end of your deployments. And uh, I'm sure, I mean, the the trauma just keeps going on and on and on. And then you're asked to go back and do some dust duty. And I'm sure that's when it all catches up to you, right? Yeah, putting putting somebody behind a desk who has been in an active fight or flight is... You know, it's like one of the reasons why like military recruiters have such a hard time because you're taking them off of a line unit and putting them in a desk to do recruiting duty. It's the same thing if you're working in a battalion staff. You're literally just, you know, you're doing a necessary function. It's got to happen. You have to have operations and you have to have intelligence and you have to have supply. You have to have all of those things so that it's necessary to have a unit function. But when you when you're forced to slow down, you know, the, the idle mind is truly the devil's playground. And you know, when I would get home, it was like I would get back into those emotions again. And, you know, when we lost, we lost Doug, um, I was friends with his mother on Facebook. And every time she would post something, it would literally rip part of my soul out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Cause I was like, I would trade places in a nanosecond if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause Doug was an only child. And, you know, just between that and then drinking, it was like, it was a recipe for disaster because the problem with alcohol is it, it doesn't allow you to get restful sleep. You never hit your REM sleep cycles. And that's one of the requirements to process out emotions is REM sleep. Mm-hmm. So we tend to over-medicate, over-medicate ourselves um, and we're never processing. So what ends up happening is day one becomes like day two, like day, next thing you know, 31 days later, that's when they'll, they'll actually diagnose you with post-traumatic stress. It's become a habit. Like the brain thinks that this is how it's supposed to function because it's been doing it for the last 30 days. And then you're you're on a new norm, right? You're activating your nervous system pretty frequently because maybe a, maybe you smell diesel fuel and all of a sudden that trigger goes active 
and you're feeling all of those emotions again. You know, I, I didn't really have flashbacks like I felt like I was there, but I could feel every one of those emotions as if I were there. And it's not the the memory that becomes the problem, not the visual, it's the emotions that attach to them. So we self-medicate because alcohol is a central nervous system to present, it's socially acceptable and it's readily available. So you see a lot of guys in the military, a lot of guys in the first responder world, it's the same thing. They'll they'll self-medicate with alcohol because it's easy access, it's acceptable, and it's a central nervous system depressant. So it slows down that vagus nerve. It calms the, the vagus nerve so that anxiety levels drop. Problem is you never get to process what you need to process. Mm-hmm. And it was March 2nd, um, the following year. I mean, it wasn't even 12 months. It was like 11 months after returning from Afghanistan I'm I'm done at that point. I'm like, dude, I can't take this anymore. I do not want to. F- if this is the rest of my life, no, thank you. Right. I don't. Want are you it. still in the military at this no. time, or did you? Are you? I'm out? I'm 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 still active duty at this okay. point. You know, I'm 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 in my basement apartment, and it was that I think it was like a Saturday night, and I'm looking at a rifle in the corner of my room, and I'm like, you know, one second it's over, the pain will be gone, the suffering will be done, and that's when I heard the kids in the apartment above me running across my ceiling, and I'm like, holy crap, that's the stupidest idea on the planet. You know, my beef wasn't with a little kid that lived above me. It was with me. You know, I was just tired of being, feeling the way I did. So I, that kind of, those kids kind of stopped me in that moment. They took me out of that state. And I realized bad idea to put a high power rifle through a, through their, their floor, my ceiling. Mm-hmm. And then the next, so I passed out like usual. And the next morning I got a phone call from Ryan. He was my driver in Afghanistan. One of my soldiers, he's like, Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? Now, whenever somebody asks you a question, have you heard about so-and-so, it's in a military setting, there's one of two things. They either got arrested or they're dead. Mm. And I'm like, nobody, what's what's up? He said, Corey shot and killed himself last night. And I literally buried my head in my hands, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I said, okay, man, I'll uh, I'll be I'll be coming in. I'll check in the guys. And I was like, man, nobody knew he was even struggling, except maybe his closest friends. And then I realized, well, shoot, nobody had a clue that I was even struggling. So I always say, Corey saved my life. Unfortunately, it's when he took his own. Hmm. And when I saw how it affected the men that that following week, getting ready for the memorial service, I was like, this can't be the way I go. I, there's no way I'll, I will. I, I got to keep fighting because I can't give one of my guys permission to do the same thing. And uh, so I just kind of kept pushing on. I still isolated. I still self, self-medicated. And after I had my third sur- surgery, I had two on my, one on each shoulder and one on my left knee. Um, the army said, Hey, we need your slot for the healthy, a healthier NCO. So we're, we're going to medically retire you. So September 11, 2014, ironically, um, I was retired off active duty and came back to the lower 48, went back to Florida. And, uh, then I started the transition journey and the transition journey. A lot of people are aware it's extremely difficult period of time for, um, veterans, especially those that have come out of combat. Well, any veteran actually it doesn't even have to be a combat vet because you're, you're living in a very structured, rigid lifestyle, you know, right place, right time, right uniform, your bills are paid. You're, you know, you basically have no expenses. Your medicals covered, your dental's covered, they'll feed you. And then you're put out on your own. And, um, but I transitioned really quickly from, um, one uniform back to another. Uh, I went, end up going right back into law enforcement and, I had to go back through the police academy. I had to do that all over again. And then uh, got hired on by a sheriff's office in central Florida. It was the same agency I used to work for pre going back in active duty. Uh, and something weird happened. I felt normal again. And I know now why. I said, because 
the brain operates in the fight or flight as a first responder by by profession. Every day, these cops and firefighters are are going out. They're doing their job. They're actually performing their duties in fight or flight. So if you're going to a hot call and you're a police officer, you're already at a level so, and and you don't feel like a fish out of water. So when I'm doing all these lights and sirens calls, I'm doing all these foot chases, I'm chasing bad guys, I'm arresting people, I'm literally operating the way my brain is hardwired at this point. Mm-hmm. Because nobody said nobody said anything about PTSD yet. You know, that hadn't that had never that had never been diagnosed, never crossed my vocabulary, but I kind of knew that there was something off, but I felt totally normal with a uniform on. And I had a lot of um, I had sciatic issues from spinal stenosis and a duty belt just grinding on that that sciatic nerve. So like my last six months um, when I was a deputy, I was I went back for at least for about two more years. Um, I had so much pain and I would literally have to lift my leg to get it into my patrol car. And I realized, well, shoot, this is I'm 40. Was it 45, 46 at that time? Chasing, you know, 19 year old meth heads through the swamps. I'm like, <laughs> probably not the smartest use of my time. And um, so my my ex-wife, my my wife at the time, we we talked about it. We're like, you know, I'm vested in the Florida retirement system. You know, I can. I can do something different. So I re- I resigned or retired technically and everything came back again. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden the, the nightmares start picking back up. The night sweats, the night terrors, the the nervous system going going supersonic constantly. I'm like what the heck is going on and it got to the point where you know my my ex-wife would you know she'd be like really worried and concerned cuz all of a sudden, I'm jumping around in bed. I'm moving around. I'm I'm yelling out in my sleep, and I didn't know, you know. But she's like, I don't know what to do. I need you to I need you to go get help, or I'm gonna have to because I don't I don't know what to do. And then she asked me about my military experience. We married after service. She she didn't know me from from my combat days, and so she started asking me questions about it. And I I told her, and she had this look of horror on her face. And I'm like, what? That's not normal. It was normal for me. You know, these are the things that we had to do deal with every day. So I go to the VA. And of course, the VA is a a train wreck in itself when it comes to mental health. Um, you know, they want to do exposure therapy and medication. First thing is medication. They're going to put you on pills. Here, take these pills. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, let's do talk therapy. And and their version of therapy is, hey, tell me about what happened. So I had a like, I think the first uh, first event that I used was was Cordo. Literally had to tell the story from the moment our patrol chief to the time we got back on the fob and you had to literally tell the entire story section by section fully activating all of those emotions all of the neurological emotions are active and you feel worse leaving the session than when you come in hmm. and my ex-wife's like you're getting worse and then i got so I'm like i don't know man i was like this is, this is crazy i don't even how is this going to work um I, you know because they only do one event at a time and i hate to tell you i got a lot more than one single thing i want to talk about or i needed to work through and so after my second appointment, they had called to cancel and I couldn't reschedule for four weeks after that. I'm like, crap, you know, then I went back. I think I did one, maybe two more appointments and then they canceled the next one and I couldn't get in for eight weeks. And that was it. That was like, I am done with the VA because if this is supposed to be 12 weeks for one event and I can go back and I'm like, I'm done, I'm out. Um, so then I started looking for other answers. You know, I really, I really wanted to feel better. I didn't want to take pills. I didn't want to do talk therapy. I'm like, there's gotta be a better way. How do we fix this? So, I mean, I went through, I went through EMDR, didn't really like that. I was all over the place with EMDR. I had a, a pretty good counselor and did something called accelerated resolution therapy. 
which helped me process the survivor guilt, but it was all in the the framing and the last question the guy asked me that I, I realized now what allowed that to release. And, you know, and then I started the, the my next biggest one, I went the probably the biggest breakthrough treatment I went through was something called the reconsolidation of traumatic memories, uh, the RTM protocol. There's an organization out of uh, Corning, New York, called the Research and Recognition Project. Uh, Dr. Um, Frank Burke was the one who developed that. And it was it's rooted in something called neuro-linguistic programming. And so I, I'm invited to go out, you know, to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is about six months after I started 22-0. So six months after I started the nonprofit, it's that whole ready, fire, aim mindset. I got to find a solution. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm pulling triggers and, and we're going to see what happens. And I'm out in New Mexico and I'm listening to these guys do the first day of training. It was a, at that time, I think it was a five day, four, four or five day training. So day one, I'm out there and I'm like, these guys are claiming that you can heal 90% of all PTSD within three to five hours. I'm like, okay. Um, I, I was having a, my cop brain was having a problem with that because I've struggled. I mean, I struggle with trauma, not just from military or law enforcement, but you know, stuff that happened in childhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I've been dealing, I've been dealing with this stuff for a pretty freaking long time. And you're telling me three to five hours, you're going to fix me. Okay. All right. So the second day I'm like, okay, I, I went to the lead trainer. We were on a break and I'm like, Hey man, I, I'm having a hard time with what you guys are saying. All right. You're, you're making a claim 90%. You can heal PTS with three to five hours. He was, yep. It's exactly what we're saying. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to recommend any veteran or first responder to go, because that's what we're looking for is things that we could connect veterans and first responders to for treatment in the clinical world. So I'm like, I'm going to have to experience this before I can recommend it because I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it. So he's like, yeah, you want to do it in front of the class when we come off break in 15 minutes? I'm like, buckle up. Uh, uh, challenge has just been accepted. And I'm about to show all these mental health counselors that you're you're an idiot. So I get up there. And in that process, you talk about your traumatic experience, and then they they pull you out of it. Once your emotions activate, they break the state. So I got pretty triggered pretty quick. You know, I, I triggered up to about a nine or a ten very very rapidly when I started telling this story, which was uncomfortable because I didn't really know any of the people in the room. Um, and then we started running the process, where you know it's your their thing is you're in a movie theater in a projection booth looking down at yourself watching this movie, and you're kind of dissociated from it. And you go through this, they have to set up a lot of visuals. It was a little bit difficult for me to do the visuals at first because it's like you're having to imagine seeing a black and white picture and then you got to drain the color. You know, it was just different, you know, so it was it was different for me. And then 45 minutes go by and then they, there's a rewind piece. And then after that, they tell you, oh, tell me about the story. And I started talking about the story and I'm like, Okay, where is it? I'm waiting for it. When's the shoe going to drop? Where's the emotions? And they never came. Hmm. And I remember looking at the, the I felt like an idiot. It's like, oh, I was about to prove this guy was an idiot. Who's the idiot? And then I said, no, actually, this is actually really good. You know, I'm like, I looked at him. I was like, dude, what, what kind of Jedi stuff is this? Mm -hmm. And half the room is laughing. The other half of the room is in tears because they just saw a, a real world traumatic experience dissolve in front of them. And, and I remember going up to Dr. Burke after this. I'm like, why is this not everywhere? You know, I know now why it's because the system doesn't like change. Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said, if I would have, when I was looking down that rifle, if I'd have known this existed, I'd have wrote you a check for 10,000 bucks. You could have drained every penny out of my bank account. I didn't want to die. I didn't. I was just so tired of being tired. So, and then sleep happens and your sleep gets reset. And then I find myself, you know, I only got to do one session out there. Um, but that one event was, was, was processed and I'm, I'm sleeping better. I'm feeling better. So one of the, um, therapist that was in the 
the the training was an Air Force vet, and she's over in Orlando. And I'm, I'm like, hey, Cynthia, I need to schedule like two weeks with you because I got a lot of crap to get rid of, <laughs> right? So I scheduled. So they, they took TRICARE. I was like, I'm not going to the VA anymore. The heck with that. And I did, I think we got our third session, and I'm like, at the end of the third session, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, hey, Cynthia, I think I'm going to have to cancel the rest of those appointments because I don't have anything right now. Wow. <laughs> and uh, which was really kind of cool. Now, I understand now, I mean, we're – Humans are layered people. You know, the, the subconscious part of the brain will actually present stuff to you when it's ready to process. You know, some things will stay buried until the brain's ready to deal with it. And I've had to work through a lot of stuff after going through the RTM protocol. But that was like the go-to. That was like we were we were funding trainings, trying to get therapists to learn this. And it was we we're literally running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. A lot of people rejecting us, saying, no, there's no way that's real. That's snake oil. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm living proof. This is me. I'm, I'm right here. I'm right in front of you. And they still wouldn't, wouldn't buy into it. And I, I spoke at an event in Orlando and a VA clinical psychologist was there. And of course she had to stand up and try to, she belittled me in front of the group saying that, that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's no, no, that, that's not, that doesn't exist. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking with her afterwards. I'm like, look, could you have like an open mind here? I said, why don't you, I, I said, we're funding a training in Tallahassee, Florida, at the Florida Sheriff's Association. It's it's going to be um, mental health counselors. I'll pay for your tuition. I'll pay for your lodging. I'll pay for your meals. I'll pay for your transformation. And you'll get continuing education credits. And she was like, there's no way on this earth that I could do that. And good conscience, absolutely not. Prolonged exposure is the gold seal treatment standard for PTSD, hands down. Nothing is going to compare to that. And I'm like, well, just go experience it, make a decision. And she wouldn't do it. Hmm. And I looked right at her. I looked right at her. I said, you know, you're going to force me to train my brother and sister to the left and the right of me. And we'll make your profession a whole lot less relevant. Yeah. And that was the hold my, that was the hold my beer moment. And that's yeah. when we pivoted 220 pivoted to a peer support organization. Cause we're like, you know what, you know, pandemic hit after that, that was in December of uh, 2019 and then 2020, all the money, every, all the money dried up for the nonprofit. We were having a hard time raising money. So we couldn't have paid for therapists to get trained anyway. So I'm like, you know what? Neurolinguistic programming is what this is all rooted in. So I started training, getting trained in a lot of NLP stuff. And that's when we're like, we can do this as an organization, as a nonprofit. So our board met. We talked about it. We're like, yeah, let's do it. We end up developing our own processes. We did the built, developed the trauma resiliency protocol, which is rooted in something that was developed for a phobia cure. I mean, it's not the same. They're 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 apples and oranges now, but they're based on the same thing because all NLP is rooted in association dissociation, and it's through that model of association dissociation that we can actually disconnect those emotional attachments. So we started doing. A TRP and the EMP. Now, the TRP is designed specifically for- I want for, to take for, a quick break because I want to get into, into 220 and how 220 was born, and you're starting to get into it there. But um, one question I do want to ask you is, as you're a, a um, in law enforcement uh, through the, the marriage with your wife and, and all this, the, are you still self-medicating with, with alcohol and isolation and things like that? No. I, I can drink a beer if I want a beer, but I don't drink a beer because I have to have one. Got it. So even after you got out and you got into law enforcement and you were, you were back into a uniform and you had mentioned that you actually felt normal again, right? Um, at that point, right. you, you didn't need to self-medicate, so you didn't have to continue drinking at that point. Right. For the five years I was married, I'd never touched alcohol. Wow. Interesting. So then, I, didn't I didn't have to have it. 
Okay, and I just wanted to, to to find that out because it's it's interesting to find out. Like you said, you you go go away to combat, you come back, you you don't know how to cope. Um, you start using a lot of the different uh, coping techniques that a lot of our veterans are still using today, which is alcohol isolation, all those different things, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why we try to get them outside. But that being said, um, you know when you put that uniform back on, even as a police officer, those those feelings kind of went away, right? Where you didn't feel like the need to have to to self medicate and self cope again. When you're operating in the fight or flight, you feel normal. Feel normal. Hmm. That becomes the new norm. That's the new norm. Wow. We're going to take a short break, Dan. Uh, when we come back, I do want to hear about uh, 220. Um, I, I'm very familiar with it, but I want our listeners to make sure that they understand uh, all the different things that you can do with, uh, with TRP and uh, EMP therapy. So uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And we're talking to Dan Jarvis. Uh, Dan, again, thank you for sharing all the information uh, that you did regarding the RTM protocol and uh, NLP and all that stuff. And so uh, you were just about to start to get into, and I apologize for interrupting you, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, our listeners understand you started 220 prior to ever going to the RTM protocol. So you already knew you wanted to try and help veterans, right? And then uh, right. basically at that point, though, is when you decided that, hey, this is where we're going to pivot my my nonprofit organization, and I'm going to start really getting into the uh, the neural and uh, logistic program, and, and you're going to try and create something new. And that's when you started uh, TRP and EMP therapy. Is that pretty accurate? That's pretty accurate. We, um, you know, first of all, the 220 was a really a, a way for me to kind of give back to the communities that I grew up in, and I knew that if I had fallen through the cracks of the VA, that tens of thousands of other vets are falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. So really it was, we were, we were trying to stand in the gap to kind of bridge that gap between those who need help and those that can provide it. And then after the pandemic hit, you know, we ended up having to kind of regroup as an organization as we didn't have the funds to support it anymore. And we were, frankly, we were tired of getting shot down by the mental health professionals. Like I'm offering to pay for your training and you're telling me to, to go pound sand. It's mm-hmm. basically what a lot of them, ended up doing because they didn't believe in what we were saying. And, and I will, one day I'll, I will thank that VA psychologist. I will literally probably buy her a box of donuts with a note and thanking her because since that moment, once we pivoted into the peer support world, we've worked with over 6,500 people, right? Not all of them are vets. Some of them are even civilians because some of them are are spouses, Mm -hmm. children, firefighters, paramedics, cops, wives of police officers, wives of firefighters, children of cops. And to, to actually sit there and watch, like it's one thing to provide the connection points. It's something totally different to, to see it, to literally watch the person transform right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Cause you can take somebody with a severe traumatic experience. doesn't matter what it is. You know, we did, we did the documentary healing the heroes of nine 11, the way forward. We took people from New York city ground zero and the Pentagon who saw the worst of the worst and we were able to get them healed using these processes, sexual battery, you know, military sexual trauma, you know, child abuse, you know, childhood sexual trauma, you know, you name it. We've done, we've worked with people. You know, we had one 
young lady who she was married to a police officer was raped and tortured for eight hours. Right. And she got her life back. So it doesn't matter the level of the trauma and, and to sit there and watch them let go of that extreme intense emotions is extremely rewarding. That's you know, you want to talk about a dope, you want to talk about a dopamine hit. It's addictive watching it. Right. Yep. And, and I'm going to tell you that I'll, I'll tell you the neuroscience behind what's happening with the TRP. Uh, it's similar as to what, what the RTM is doing as well. There's a neural pathway that connects to the amygdala. That's the fight, flight, or freeze part of your brain. That's where we're walking through the jungles and we see a saber-toothed tiger. Do we freeze because it doesn't see us? Do we haul butt because it's on top of us or running after us? Or do we fight it? Right? That part of the brain was based survival instinct. So when the when the traumatic experience occurs, IED, IED blast or you know gunshot wound, whatever it is, there's an emotion that connects to that memory. So you'll have a neural pathway and a picture and then another neural pathway and the emotions and another neural pathway going into the hippocampus. So it's like a circle. We call it a negative feedback loop. And when that vagus nerve goes supersonic, it's just activating those triggers. You're literally getting flooded with emotions. And that's the problem. You know, I always talk about, you know, guys, we have eight specific emotions. We know what they all are. We call it the eight pack of crayons, right? And then, you know, ladies got 16 pack, right? They got more emotions than, than us guys. And we're like, what the heck is all that? But but they know what it is, right? Yep. They're comfortable with it. And then there's a 64 pack of crayons. And that's the trauma emotions. That's all of them. The good, the bad, and the indifferent hitting the body at the same time. And we don't know what fuchsia is. It's so confusing and foreign to us when we feel that. We get super overwhelmed because we're like, what is this? This is good. This is bad. This is not good. This is not bad. What is this? You know, and it's in that moment of fuchsia that we lose so many of our veterans and first responders because they get so overwhelmed. That's where I was. I was getting overwhelmed all the time and I didn't, didn't even realize it. It's one of the reasons why service dogs are so critical for vets because they're, they're a break state animal. They'll take that 90 second wave of emotions and, and turn it into 15 seconds because that the dog will be up in your licking your face, you know, getting you out of your head. Next thing you know, you're laughing because your dog's being an idiot. And then you're not, you're not, you're not thinking about those emotions anymore. All right. So, once the trigger's active, it's malleable. In other words, the emotional state can change. So you activate the trigger, which means you don't have to talk about it because we do it fluently. We don't need to talk about a traumatic experience to activate it. And in the TRP, we just tell them, hey, we don't even need to know what it is. Just think about it. And all we're going to do is we're going to call it the event. All right. Just name it the event. Something just basic. You know what it is. And then you set up the process on that event and you run the dissociated movie and then you run the rewind. And the next thing you know, that 10 is like a one or a two. Well, that's weird. You know, now you run a new emotion through the amygdala filter. Think of the best day of your life ever. Wedding day, the birth of the child, the day you got your DD-214, whatever that day is that was so rewarding for you. And you get them to associate into that positive feeling and that emotion re-imprints over the old memory. It doesn't change the memory. The memory's there. It's not, nothing, no details. Some, some of the details may become more available to you because as you sh as you clear up the the brain, you, you might remember more details. So what you're doing is you're resetting the emotion that's attached to it. You know, and that's it on the trauma. You do that on every single traumatic experience. You know, and if you're an analytical thinker, you know, you will want to do one event at a time, keep it chunked down real low. Uh, if you're not an analytical thinker, I've worked as many as 18 traumatic um, triggers in one set of bookends Wow. where you just activate, activate each of them individually and then set your wide, your bookends, maybe nine years, maybe 25 years apart run that rewind. It's like a cast net. It'll literally, it can pull all those neural pathways out of the way. 
And and that's what you're doing is you're it's called memory reconsolidation. Right? You're reconsolidating the memories to to the part of the brain where they belong. So once that amygdala releases that neural pathway, and that picture releases the neural pathway to the emotion, the emotions pull back to the hippocampus so that you can use it next week, next month, next year. You don't you don't lose the ability to have those emotions. They're just in a different part of the brain, and then the memory goes long term. And now it's no longer like it's in your back pocket. It's like oh wow, that was actually 20 years ago. It didn't feel like yesterday anymore. And that's really what you're doing is you're putting it, you're putting it in the appropriate neurological positioning, you know, and if it's something like anxiety or an anger problem, we'll use the EMP on those types of emotions. And once again, all we do is we have them activate the trigger, dissociate them from it. And then it's a framing exercise. All right. Then you're reframing the events based on your current level of understanding. You know, maybe you're, maybe you got angry when you were six years old because you had an angry dad. Right. So as a 40 year old, if you go back to that six year old, it's a lot easier to look at the event as an adult and say, well, I wouldn't wasn't my fault. You know, I was just, you know, doing what my dad was doing or I was, you know, made me a better person. And the next thing you know, the brain makes sense out of that event and it releases that neural pathway where you won't even be able to feel the anger anymore. So same thing with anxiety. Anxiety is the leading cause of long term disability in the United States. And it takes about maybe 10 minutes to fix. Find the root. Activate the trigger dissociate, reframe, release every single time. It does sound like voodoo, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like it does. you, you said it when it happened to it, you. You said it's just, uh, it I, doesn't. I, I was like, what kind of Jedi stuff is exactly the words that came out of my mouth? Yeah. This is Jedi. What is this? This isn't the trauma you're looking for. You know, we've heard voodoo. We've heard magic. We've heard all kinds of different things. Um, but it's real, you know, and that's part of the problem is it's so simple that those in the system have a really difficult time comprehending because they've been educated a specific way. You know, I used to get really angry with them. Like that psychologist, it's not her fault. It's just the way she was educated or the better term is it's the way she was programmed. She was programmed to believe that this is the way it is. There's no deviation from it. You know, we get a lot of um, resistance typically from the clinical world, but what they're doing is they're at, well, where's your, where's your uh, peer reviewed literature. And then my reply is, wait a minute. You want 30 doctors to read the same article and come to the same conclusion? Where's the innovation? Innovation always comes from the outside. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're going to do is we're just going to force the industry to change or not be relevant, you know, because we need the therapist to get trained. You know, I got a, I got a licensed therapist in, um, in Norfolk area. He's a Vietnam vet and he's a retired police officer. He came and he learned the process and I get messages from him every once in a while and last one was, man, this, he goes, this is awesome. He goes, I'm the only therapist in my practice, in my clinic doing trauma work, and I'm getting five or six referrals a day, and I exclusively use the TRP. Wow. And a lot of a lot of them are vets. Well, I can't even quantify that. If he's doing five or six a day and he's working five days a week, you know, that one therapist might be working, might be fixing 25 people a week, 100 people a month, 1,200 people a year. Amazing. They're they're what we would call the force multiplier, but we can't get them out of their own heads to look at something different. It's a blind spot, and it's very frustrating. But it's just the system we have, and and until we get that, you know, tipping point, you know, we're going to be struggling with that, you know, pretty regularly. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I I uh, I want to mention that uh, since you and I have met, um, we've known each other now for a couple of years. That um, 
my two nonprofit organizations, Take Event Fishing and Operation Healing Heroes, um, we've sent multiple, actually it's over a hundred now veterans to Ooh. you and to 220 for, uh, for some healing. And, uh, as a matter of fact, we just did two this week. And, um, <clears throat> again, I can't say thank you enough for, I feel, I always call it the bat phone. I feel like I got the bat phone to Dan because, <clears throat> excuse me, I, anytime I need it, um, you know, I'm able to to shoot you a text message, and and within a matter of minutes, not hours, not days, not weeks, you're you're responding to these individuals, and so um, you understand how critical it can be, um, right? To to react quickly to somebody who's in distress, especially you don't know where they're at, um, how long have they been struggling, uh, at what you know what point of the scale are they on? If they, are they at a two or are they at a ten right now? And if they're at a ten, we got to bring them down to a two, and so. Uh, right. Two veterans this week that contacted me because we've become a resource, and I'm proud to say that. Um, you know, we'll, we supply, uh, we we don't do the healing. Uh, Twenty two zero does the healing, but we provide uh, hopefully the the pathway and also some finances if if needed uh, to be able to get that healing. And so I, I'm going to read two testimonials. This is this week. This is this happened this week. I had uh, a veteran friend reach out to me uh, who who knew what we do and uh, he's known about me for a long time and the things that we've done. He himself struggled with PTS. I knew he did. I've always offered to help him. Um, and he finally called me this week and said, Hey, uh, enough's enough. I've had enough. I need, I need some help. And, and after reaching out to you and doing a three-way text message with him uh, that evening, uh, this is probably what three or four in the afternoon. And by 7 PM, you had him on to a session with one of your, uh, one of your clinicians. And basically um, I followed up with him the next day and I said, how are you feeling today? Uh, cause I told him that this stuff is going to really be life changing for you. And he said his text message to me and I quote, I feel like a hundred pounds has been lifted off my chest. I feel refreshed. I got way deeper sleep last night. I woke up feeling productive today and I'm not just in a fog and feeling overwhelmed. Thank you for helping me out. I'm amazing, right? That's, mm. that's absolutely it's amazing. Beautiful. That's that. And that's, that was in a matter of minutes you know, or hours, not even, you know, it didn't even take a, a day, a week. It took, it took a matter of minutes, but it just took him wanting to get the help. And then second right. veteran uh, was referred over to me. It was a, um, actually one of our sponsors and it was uh, a sponsor's um, relative and that relative needed some help and uh, was pretty much at wit's end. Cause like you had been through the VA process and uh, wasn't getting the relief that they needed and uh, literally didn't know how they were going to put one foot in front of the other tomorrow. You know what I mean? And so um, thankfully when I explained that we have resources uh, she was able to put this gentleman in touch with me. Um, I followed up with him again 24 hours after he had received his first TRP therapy over this past weekend. And here's the exact text message I got from him. And I quote, it was amazing. I have slept great the last two nights. I had zero issues when I took my daughter to the mall yesterday. I don't know what kind of voodoo they're doing there, but it's literally <sighs> life changing. Thank you for getting that set up for me. I can't thank you enough. I feel like I have a second chance in life. End quote unbelievable second chance of life amen right yep so we 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 get those every day i, I mean and the, it's it's remarkable because one we're looking for pockets of veterans to work with right we want veterans we've got plenty of coaches you know we could probably handle 500 in a month easily you know so it's that's to me that that's what lights my fire absolutely absolutely and Again, I am 
not a combat veteran. I never served uh, my, you know, my grandfather, my father, my brother all served. I never got to serve in the military. I, I served by trying to give back to our veterans and their family members now. But that being said, um, I did get go through this process. And, and again, uh, this is just for the, the average listener. Um, I had severe fear of heights, right? Uh, a severe fear of heights. Didn't understand why I couldn't put pinpoint it back to whatever it was in my childhood that that created that because it is created and um you know we ran trp therapy on me and and uh i can tell you that it was the most amazing thing because within a matter of minutes uh i was able to go uh try and do some zip lining and i had zero fear of heights i was literally and this is to the point where it was so debilitating for me that not only uh, the week before this, I was actually on vacation with my family, and uh, we were on a seven-story seven-story hotel balcony. We had a seventh-floor room, and not only could I not go out on the balcony, but my wife and my son couldn't go out on the balcony because I felt like something was going to happen to them. That's how yeah. severe my <laughs> my fear of heights was, right? And after one, I don't know, I'll call it fifteen twenty-minute session of TRP or EM therapy, I literally was cured. I do not have a fear of heights anymore. I can walk up mm. anywhere and, and it's absolutely amazing. So I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, I'll call it voodoo too, because I, I, it doesn't make sense, but <laughs> it's literally like you said, it detaches the emotion from the trauma. And so, um, I did, my brain did reconsolidate at the end. Uh, I went into a REM sleep and I actually, uh, went back to a point in my childhood when I was about five or six years old, I went to a swimming pool with my next door neighbors and they had a high dive there. And I climbed this mm. high dive and I remember getting to the top of this high dive and I froze up there. I basically, I couldn't go off the end of the board. I couldn't go back down the ladder because there was 30 kids coming up the ladder and they were all screaming at me. And I remember just crying yep. and kind of sitting on the board. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And the, the, the lifeguard at that time, you know, I'm blowing her whistle at me and telling me I have to go, go, go. And I'm like, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. I can't go. And so she gets off her chair and comes over and talks to me and says, Hey, listen, you got to go. Cause I got 30 kids coming up a ladder and all these kids are screaming at me. And so I did, I went off the end of the board. Well, that was the traumatic experience for me. I didn't want to go. I, sure. I had to do it. That memory for me was so far gone out of my brain and out of my mm -hmm. memory banks, and I would have never been able to, to, to think of that, right? I mean, and I go into sleep, yep. I go into REM sleep, and all of a sudden I have this dream, and that was it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Yep. I, I mean, it was gone, mm -hmm. but it pulled it out. And from that point yep. forward, it, it fixed me. And so I don't know. I can't, I can't explain it, but uh, yeah, it works. That's all I can tell well. you. All I can say is, is you said you're what five years old when that happened? How old yeah, I was like, I'm gonna guess I was like five or six years old. I was I was young. Okay, you know, and I I tell this with everybody because we when we go back and we find the memories in their childhood, an adult will look back on that event and say, well, that's not traumatic. So you don't ever perceive it as traumatic. But guess what? It was for the five year old, and that's exactly when your brain coded that traumatic experience, and that's exactly the root of your fear of heights. Yeah. So to be able to dis to be able to disconnect that neural pathway, you know what it does is it puts it into proper context. You know, um, yeah, it's it's crazy. We did um, we've got a lot of research left to do. I mean, we've got data points on over a thousand thirty three people pre and post scores where all of them are asymptomatic for PTSD or anxiety or depression, and yes. because the, the the key is the sleep. The key is sleep. The sleep is where the magic happens. That's the re that's the reconsolidation part. That's the REM rapid eye movement. That's when the brain does what it's supposed to do. And most of us have a hard time getting into REM because one, we're insomniacs. Mm -hmm. We're medicated with with prescription drugs that intentionally prevent REM sleep or alcohol. 
You know, those are the those are the reasons that we have these issues. That's what that's problems with first responders when they get involved with a critical incident. They'll go home and they'll drink, you know, to calm their calm their nerves. Right? You got to if you have something happen to you, you got to not drink for at least a week. Let the brain get back to normal because once you start sleeping, your brain will start processing. But if you do anything to prevent that from processing, that's that's when that's the anatomy of post traumatic stress. That's all it is. You're, you're developing a habit. We're going to take a short break, Dan. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, specifically um, how people can get in touch with you to uh, to experience this healing and then also talk about uh, how they themselves can actually learn and administer TRP and EMP therapy. Um, we'll be right back. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is 22-0. We believe there's a better way to heal trauma and unhelpful negative emotions, not teach you to cope with them. The Trauma Resiliency Protocol, TRP, is for post-traumatic stress and acute stress. The Emotions Management Process, EMP, is for extreme negative triggers involving unhelpful emotions like sadness, anger, or shame, often accompanying traumatic or significant emotional events. During these therapies, you're not required to discuss the trauma. Everything centers around the triggered emotions. They become malleable when active. We change the state of the emotions, not the memory. There are no cost or fees associated with veteran coaching. Best of all, you can do the work remotely in the comfort of your own home. Visit www.220.org for more information. And we're back talking uh, to Dan Jarvis. Again, Dan, thanks for sharing all the information with us regarding 220 and TRP, EMP therapy. Um, like I said, I know it sounds Jedi, but man, this stuff is so real. And so um, that being said, I wanted to let the, the listeners know a few things. One, this stuff isn't free, obviously. We've got, you know, you've guys got overhead as a nonprofit organization. Um, you know, you accept donations. Uh, they're all tax write-off. Uh, so if a person is listening to us right now that maybe works for a company or maybe they own a company and they'd like to make a donation uh, so that you can continue treating our veterans and their family members and our first responders and their family members for free, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, well, they can contact me directly. My mobile number is 863-221-6304 or email me at dan at 220.org. They just want to go to the website, uh, www.22zero.org. You can make a donation directly on the website as well. Perfect. Well, I want to continue to talk about 220. And uh, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating, Dan, is that, um, and you've had several of these individuals, you mentioned one in Norfolk, Virginia, who, who goes through your program, uh, receives the healing uh, that they absolutely deserve, and then they go on to being a coach for 220, and they administer this process to other veterans and veteran family members and that type of thing. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the the gentleman in Norfolk is actually a licensed professional counselor, so he actually gets he he works as a therapist. What we do have um, predominantly, I mean, 99.9 percent .9 of who we train now are veterans and first responders. So like Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps vets, Coast Guard, um, cops, firefighters, paramedics, we'll train them to do the work. And, and we're actually starting to train peer support teams with um, law enforcement agencies and fire departments. So where they can actually utilize these events, these these protocols, while well, the events are just happen, like in the acute stress phase. Um, our coaches, what we do is we do, it's a three-day training. Um, probably one day of the training is, is going to be online training where they have to listen to all the the audio that goes with it to, to learn a little bit of the academics. So we try to 
cut down the time of the actual training. And then day one and two of, of live training is over Zoom. And day one, we do the trauma resiliency protocol where we actually work on each other's traumatic experiences. So you actually go through the process as part of the training and then you administer it as part of the training so that you get comfortable. Day two, we do the emotions management work where we do anger, sadness, fear, shame, hurt, survivor guilt, anxiety, panic attacks, whatever it is, low self-esteem. And we'll do EMP work with each other on each other so that you get to feel the heal. That way you know it's real. And then the coaches will, those that work with us, um, they owe us um, 20, 20 clients. That way they don't have to pay for training. They work with 20 clients. And then after that, we actually pay the veterans $100 per vet that they work with, $100 per first responder they work with, or a family member. So they actually, the coaches that we have right now are actually earning a paycheck, uh, contributing back to the cause. And, you know, it's it's to double to double benefit. So we're we're putting money in a vet's pocket and we're healing a vet at the same time. Love it. So it's it's pretty it's pretty it's a pretty unique uh, little scenario. An average number of sessions, uh, I would say, is about two two sessions, and sometimes they'll go to three and four sessions. But we're averaging about two sessions, maybe even a little less than two, um, depending upon which study group we're looking at. But um, so you may have an hour and a half wrapped up in into somebody, and they're you know the vets are making a hundred bucks to work with them because you know eventually we, when we get more resources, we'd love to pay them a hundred bucks a session. You know, because the therapist is probably making, you know, anywhere from between one and 300. We'd love to be able to pay our coaches to do that same level of work. Um, yeah. So if, if you got, if you're listening to this and you're a veteran and you, you want to be a part of the 220 team, you can send me an email, uh, same email as before, dan at 220.org. And Dr. Pam Arnell, she's our executive director, will reach out and, and get you at least on the wait list so that when a training does come up, that you know you can you can step into the training with with the the group. Um, if you are a first responder and you are on a peer support team, you know connect us with your your people because like I can tell you right now, fixing the problem when the stress occurs is a lot cheaper than having to hire a new police officer, a new firefighter because one you've either lost them to suicide or they just said I can't take the stress anymore and quit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're 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 getting great results in that world. Um, we train folks with the U.S. Border Patrol. Um, Florida, we've got a lot of sheriff's offices that we've trained, um, Highlands County Sheriff's Office, Sumter County Sheriff's Office, Seminole County, Alachua County, um, uh, Lake County, Broward County down south, Fort Lauderdale PD, you know, Pompano Fire Department, Lakeland Fire Department, you know, so you name it, you know, that's, that's the best way moving forward because, you know, there's a high veteran population in those communities as well. Um, so Ideally, if if you run a nonprofit and you deal with vets with PTSD, we would love to be a resource for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need any we don't need anything other than the veterans to work with, and then we'll send the veterans right back to you. Um, or if you want to be involved with the training so that you can administer it at your nonprofit, you know, we're not we're not competing for your dollars. You know, and that's one of the things that we've had a hard struggle with is a lot of, you know, there's there's disjointed disunity in the veteran space because everybody's competing for the same dollars. Our, our, our position is a little bit more unique. We're, we're not looking for money from any nonprofit organization. We're, we're looking for people to heal. You know, that's bottom line. That's all we want. That's all we want to do is heal the people and restore their families. I can absolutely vouch for that. Cause, um, again, we've referred, like I said, well over a hundred veterans now to, uh, to Dan at 220 and, um, 
literally, I can I can honestly say that a hundred percent of them have found some relief. I mean, it's it's an amazing amazing thing. Now, I, I can honestly say that uh, based on some of their trauma and and the deep rooted. Uh, situations that they've been in, maybe it doesn't fix them a hundred percent. But that being said, um, you know, you've also got to want to heal, right? I mean, and that's another thing that you and I have had conversations about. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, there are some veterans out there that that don't want to heal. Um, they they they're in fear of losing their VA disabilities. There's right. a, a slew of different things. But um, talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so that's called secondary gain, secondary benefit. So there's a benefit to the trauma, right? And for some of us, it's financial. For some of us, it's a caregiver. They don't want to lose their caregiver. Um, and and we're dealing with a cause and effect relationship. So people that are at cause, I'll give you a scenario. You have the veteran that says, I have PTSD because my country sent me to war. And then you have the veteran that says, I have PTSD because my country let me go to war and I did some really cool stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. That's cause and effect. You know, that's the victim versus the victor mindset. So people that are stuck in the victim mindset, they're benefiting some way for that from the emotions. And then you're dealing with there. I mean, there's plenty of folks in the veteran community that have, you know, what they call cluster B personality disorders. It's, you know, we're dealing with people who have like deep, deep, dark trauma all the way back to birth that that, that they know no other existence except for that's things like borderline personality disorder. Um, you you get the narcissistic personality disorders as part of those cluster Bs or or histrionic. Um, they have a they have a benefit to their trauma based on the reactions that people give them when they when they go explosive mode, and it's very difficult to deal with those. And it's it's a very you know unfortunate you know most of them we could probably heal, providing they were wanting to heal. Mm-hmm. And but a lot of them in those categories don't want to heal. Veterans, if you got disability. All right. I'm going to share my story if you don't, if, if I can. Absolutely. So when I went, when I went through the RTM protocol and I healed, literally I'm like, Holy cow, I don't have, I really don't have P- I mean, I still had other stuff to work on, but I don't have what you would qualify as PTSD anymore. So I go to my VA psychiatrist and I'm like, Hey doc, I want to get reevaluated. And his reaction was why what's wrong. And I said, well, I don't have PTSD anymore. I want you to take my benefits and give it to somebody else who needs it. So now that I was, I'm 100% permanent total. That would have dropped me to a 90% rating. I would have lost $1,800 a month, but I didn't want to be on the front line of the fight saying we can fix it and not offer to give it back. All right. That was me. And the psychiatrist says, you can't cure PTSD. You're going to have it the rest of your life. You're going to need to treat it with medication and therapy. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And then I asked him if he had heard of the research and recognition project and then Next thing you know, we, you know, I gave him the research the next time we met, and then we talked about it the time after that. And I'm like, I don't think you realize, Doc, this isn't you, it's me. It's saying working for me. I'm, I'm breaking up with you, right? And I don't go back anymore, and they didn't take my benefits. And I've talked to a couple of clinical psychologists with the VA, and they said that they're not set up to do that, especially when it comes to the mental health. They're not going to take your benefits away for PTSD because it's just, unless they can prove fraud, they're not, they're not going to touch them. So even though I tried to give it back and they wouldn't take it, I still get hundred percent permanent total. I'm so like, okay, you if you want to pay me. Yeah. So there you go. So, so you don't and, even have to worry about the VA trying to take your benefits back. If you've already been, you know, diagnosed as 80, 90, hundred percent, whatever yeah. it is. My ex-wife says they probably documented in your, your records that you were delusional. I said, well, that's fine. I just, you know, but and here's the other part. We're peer coaches, right? 22 is full of peer coaches. We're just like you. We're vets, you know, combat vets, vets, cops, firefighters. We can't say you have it. We can't diagnose you with it. And we can't say you don't have it. Right. Right. We just want to help you sleep at night 
get along with your family and not kill yourself. That's, That's right. it. Make tomorrow what you tell the VA today. is entirely, absolutely. What you tell the VA is entirely up to you. So there's no reason to not try and go through this. And again, I always say, what if it gives you 10%, 25%, 50%, 75%, hell, what if it's 100% relief? I mean, isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth the time to invest into you? Because obviously, if you're sick of struggling with PTS, you'll do anything to 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 make tomorrow better than today. And so I always say it's absolutely worth it. Um, and, and again, mm-hmm. I think it's even more special, the fact that uh, you can not only go through it and receive the relief yourself, but then you can pay it forward. And that's that's what we get from a lot of our veterans, and I'm sure you do too, right? Um, every veteran wants to help another veteran, and they always say, how can sure. I help? How can I help? Well, guess what? You can't help until you've been helped and you get treated, right? And then once you've been helped and you you get treated, then you can go out and help others. And so um, right. you you know, Dan's laid out a plan here through 220 where you can come in, get the help for free, mind you, right? No, no cost. That doesn't, it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Um, you can get the help for free and then you can actually take one of the training courses and actually be able to administer this in a parking lot, a gas station, a shopping mall, wherever you feel the need, you you could come across somebody that that's suffering with PTS in, in what, 15, 20 minutes, you can actually be done with a session and, and that person can receive the help and the relief that they deserve too. So there's no reason not to, I, to me, it's just a win, win, win. It, it doesn't make any sense why mm-hmm. you wouldn't do it. Yeah, and and for the record, not all of them are fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. but usually don't last more than thirty minutes for for one event. Right, and that's just if somebody if somebody's not a super visual person, you just got to walk them through that. Visual people, quick, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, they're yeah, done. That's amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, something new that you guys have going on called the Anxiety Guys, a new podcast that you're going to be premiering or that you've already premiered. Actually, uh, I think it's on Spotify, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Yep. Yeah. It's on it's on all iHeart, Spotify. It's on everything. We're still waiting to get up on the Apple and the Google Play. But um, so my best friend, Nick Davis, we actually started a separate entity called Anxiety Guys um, because we've been doing the nonprofit for about five years now. And we've we've got it streamlined. We're in really good, solid foundation. Um, but we wanted to bring the the services that we offer to the civilian world because you know, trauma is not uniquely a veteran or first responder mm-hmm. issue. There's probably, you know, 11 million Americans clinically diagnosed with PTSD and only a million of us are vets. And, you know, and most of those that are active law enforcement won't seek help anyway. And same thing with firefighters. So they're not in that group of of, um, of diagnosis. So we're talking with a lot of civilians with a lot of problems. So Anxiety Guys is we're doing primarily stories on the civilian side to kind of open the doors up for people in that community. Um, to understand what trauma is from a veteran's perspective, you know, because so many of the civilians come to us and say, well, I didn't, I don't, I don't deserve this because I didn't go to war like you did. I say, well, I hate to tell you this trauma is not, doesn't pick and choose. It just happens. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I am, if my event is a nine and your event is a 10 and yours involved with a car crash and fatalities, guess what? Yours is more intense than my event. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're a civilian. So, and then I always say 70% or maybe even more of the veterans and first responders we work with, it's the childhood stuff that's the worst. Mm -hmm. So don't sell yourself short. If you're a civilian, you can get help too, all right? Um, We do also have the High Ground podcast for 22-0, and that's going to be primarily veteran and first responder stories. So you you can go to the website and you can can find them there. But, But civilians, you two are not destined to a life of struggle. Excellent. And when does, uh, when did your podcast uh, release? When do they, when do they, we just drop, 
they they drop 5 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. So gotcha. uh, we're the second podcast just dropped yesterday. Perfect. Well, good luck to you. I, I know that that's uh, hopefully something, another resource that people could use to to go out there and listen and get some more information regarding 220 and TRP, EMP therapy, that type of thing. So, and and hopefully listen to some real life stories of, of individuals. Cause yeah. again, it's always, it's easy for me to sit here and read these testimonials from these veterans, but until you've experienced it yourself, you just, it's, it's hard. And I get it. I wasn't, I was skeptical. I'm not going to lie, but um, the reality is, is that, um, you know, if you can do it for me, I think you can do it for just about anybody. So um, we all have trauma. Right. There's not a person out there that's walking the face of this earth that doesn't have some form of trauma in their life, you know? And, um, so yeah, I mean it's it's super important yep. that we learn about it and uh, and and understand more importantly that there are ways of coping and and uh, it, it's not isolation and alcohol. It's it's uh, there's different and better ways. So, well, Absolutely. Dan. Uh, that being said, um, what would you say to any veteran or family member who's listening uh, to this show who is currently struggling with post traumatic stress and uh, is contemplating trying to reach out for some help uh maybe they feel still they're in that that stage where ah, i really don't need it it's it should be for some other veteran that's worse off than i am right or some other family member that's worse off than i am uh what would you say to those individuals so i want them to go out two years into the future and imagine their world is back on track perfect free of nightmares free of stress and look back and see what that looks like that is a 100 percent possibility do not struggle any longer than you have to. You do not need to. You're not alone. You're going to find somebody on the other end of that call that's been through the same scenarios or similar scenarios as you and understands and has empathy for what you've gone through. And I'm sure you've done a lot of work to try to get to where you are. Just give it an opportunity and, and get your life back. Absolutely. You owe it to your family. Amen to that. So again, let's just run through some ways that they can get in touch with you. Uh, 220.org. So the number two, the number two, Z-E-R-O.org. Uh, Dan at 220.org. And why don't you give your uh, your phone number again real quick? 863-221-6304. Perfect. And uh, again, the, the, the new podcast is called The Anxiety Guys. Uh, it's going to air on Wednesday mornings at 5 a.m., uh, you can find it on all everywhere you catch your podcasts. I'm sure they'll be out on Apple Podcasts here very soon. Uh, again, thanks for taking the time, Dan, to share this story with us and uh, and sharing the heroic stuff that you're doing with 220. Um, real quick, any parting words? Yeah, I just want to say to everybody out there, this country is worth every ounce of treasure that we have to get the people we have healthy again. Amen to that, brother. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with us, Dan. I certainly appreciate it. Um, life's a journey. Sometimes it can be a struggle. Uh, there's always somebody somewhere out there, something, organizations like 220, Operation Healing Heroes, Take Up a Fishing, that we want to help you out. So please make sure that you look us up, uh, get in touch with us. We will absolutely help you. Uh, post-traumatic stress is a silent killer, but there are ways of healing. So please take our word for it. Uh, not going to cost you a cent. Just get in touch with us. If you'd like more information about today's podcast, please visit our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And until we speak to another veteran next week, we hope everyone has a great week and we'll talk soon. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is 220. We believe there's a better way to heal trauma and unhelpful negative emotions, not teach you to cope with them. The Trauma Resiliency Protocol, TRP, is for post-traumatic stress and acute stress. 
The Emotions Management Process, EMP, is for extreme negative triggers involving unhelpful emotions like sadness, anger, or shame, often accompanying traumatic or significant emotional events. During these therapies, you're not required to discuss the trauma. Everything centers around the triggered emotions. They become malleable when active. We change the state of the emotions, not the memory. There are no costs or fees associated with veteran coaching. Best of all, you can do the work remotely in the comfort of your own home. Visit www.220.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.